Well, welcome everyone. I'll join my welcome to Melissa's. I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia here in New Jersey. And tonight we are going to talk about the family afterwards, rather I'm going to talk about the family afterwards. Um, this is a great chapter. I'm not sure, get through it all this week. If not, we'll finish it up and combine it with two employers um, next time but, or next week or whenever, but there's so much good, rich stuff here. This chapter is really about ways to practice, right? Our step 12 says we practice these principles in all our affairs. Well, what are the principles and how do we practice them? And this chapter is really meaty on that. So if you have your big book, we are on page 122 and it starts off by saying, are women folk. Okay, this was written a long time ago, guys, so we'll cut them some slack. Our women folk have suggested certain attitudes a wife may take with a husband who is recovering. Then they say, perhaps they created the impression that he is to be wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal. Successful readjustment means the opposite. Well, we could talk for a whole hour about place it, wrapping someone in cotton wool or placing them on a pedestal. And they're telling us, don't do either of those things. Well, what does that mean to wrap someone in cotton wool? I think it means that we just are so overly protective because we're afraid something bad will happen. So now how do we as addicts apply that? Don't wrap someone in cotton wool. Well, if we're moms of young kids, it might mean we don't do their homework for them, that we get rid of the fear that they'll fail, that they, you know, if a kid does, if I don't do my kid's homework, my kid will fail and then I'll be a bad mom and that kid's life will be ruined. You know, we might, we want to stop protecting people from the consequences of their actions. So I think that's what it means to not wrap someone in cotton wool. Um, we don't walk around afraid that if we do something, the person will flunk a class, get drunk. Remember, I'm not that powerful. My actions cannot cause anyone to get drunk. So we, you know, we don't do that. We live our lives and we don't tiptoe around other people, afraid that if we don't, something bad will happen. And it says we don't place them on a pedestal, meaning we don't make an idol out of anyone. Um, being made an idol out of is dangerous. I was thinking about it. It's like if someone is placed on a pedestal, that means no one's going to confront them if they see them doing something wrong. So I know I make a point in my life to always have you know, someone or more than one person who I know gets me and will let me have it if they see me getting off track. My sponsor has no problem telling me if she sees me getting off track. And we all need people in our lives like that. So we want to be careful not to place ourselves on a pedestal, that we put ourselves so above everyone that no one feels comfortable telling us if they see us going off track. And we don't put someone else on a pedestal, meaning we don't put someone else ahead of God. So for me, I was thinking about it in like recovery, 
I didn't really put people on pedestals like, oh, you know, that person is just so amazing. I put relationships on pedestal. And for me, the relationship I put on a pedestal was my relationship with my children. It was, I made a God uh, with a small G um, or an idol out of making sure my kids and I had a good relationship, making sure they loved me. So um, as you can imagine, when they were teenagers, I had a lot of bad days because um, they got mad at me and said things like, I wish you weren't my mom. My kids are adopted. So I got that. You're not my real mom. Um, and, and it cut me. It just, it was like a knife in my gut. And, you know, well-meaning people would say, well, it's normal if your kids, you know, reject you to feel sad about it. It may be normal, meaning that's what 99% of the world does. But if you were in Paris during World War II, 99% of the people were emaciated. So that might have been normal, but it wasn't healthy. So for me, um, I had to knock that pedestal on the ground. So what are some other things we put on a pedestal? The college our kids get into, um, our jobs, what our boss thinks of us. So we all have them and we should be looking for ways to just, you know, not put people, things, or relationships on a pedestal. Okay, so we've made it through three, three um, sentences. Then it tells me all members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. So that's my goal with people, tolerance. That means I should be always looking to raise my level of tolerance so that what people say doesn't bother me. So my son, um, he's home for Christmas break, college, he's 20. He just got his first vehicle. He used to drive my husband's truck. We would find an empty soda can or two or 10, um, you know, in the truck and never bothered my son. So my car is pretty clean and we're driving back from church yesterday on Christmas. And he says, mom, you really should think about cleaning your car sometime soon. And I thank God because my level of tolerance has been raised so that my reaction was, I said nothing. I let him sit with that remark and maybe think, oh, that was kind of rude. It did. I didn't have to get him back. I can tolerate people not always treating me, you know, like I'm the queen of England, or I guess now the king of England. Um, I can tolerate it. It doesn't matter so much. What other people think, say, or do doesn't define me because what God thinks of me and the notion and the knowledge that God has my back, that's what defines me. Understanding. So that means if someone does something that's unkind, um, I try and think why. I don't just say, oh, this person was unkind. It's like, why? What's going on with them? Now, again, caveat, if someone's beating someone or is emotionally abusive, we don't always have to be understanding. Sometimes we just have to be out the door. But if my husband, let's say, snaps, and that's not what he usually does, I think, huh, did he have a hard day at work today? 
you know, everyone doesn't have to treat me perfectly all the time. And love. We'll talk a little bit later about what love is, what the elements of love are. And it says, okay, in order to do that, it involves a process of deflation, ego deflation. Because the alcoholic, his wife, his children, his in-laws, um, the addict, the compulsive eater, each one is likely to have fixed ideas about the family's attitude toward himself or herself and is interested in having his, his or her wishes, I write by, by wishes, I put demands respected. So they're telling me I have to be careful of fixed ideas. So here's one, a fixed idea. Family should be together for Christmas, right? No one would say that's a bad fixed idea. Well, this year at the 11th hour, the last minute, my daughter just says, yeah, I'm not coming home for Christmas after she was and it was planned. Yeah, I'm not coming home. Um, she's 21 and it's like, okay. And I just thought, it's like, I cannot have a fixed idea that if all my kids aren't home for Christmas, then there's something wrong. I can't have a demand that everyone come home for Christmas. Now you could all sit there and say, oh, you poor Janet, you know, of course your daughter should come home for Christmas. And maybe you're right, maybe you're not, I don't know. But I know that me as an addict, I cannot afford to have fixed ideas that will lead me into resentment. Now, can I be sad? Sure, you know, I've spent, you know, on Christmas day, it's like, this is really sad. My daughter isn't with me. Um, but I can't let it cross the line into resentment. I have to acknowledge I'm sad. And then I said, okay, what can I do about this? Did some outreach. And I said, okay, I'm a mother without her daughter on Christmas. My mother who has advanced dementia um, and probably wouldn't even remember if I'm there or not, I went to see her. So my mother had her daughter for Christmas. So again, I can be sad, but I can't have demands and fixed ideas, which will always lead me to resentment. And it tells me it will lead other people to resentment. Imagine if I said to my daughter, how dare you? You know, you're supposed to be home for Christmas. Like you planned it. We were counting on it. We bought you gifts. How dare you? Well, what's she going to say? She's going to get mad. Like, who are you to tell me what to do? So none of that. I had no fixed ideas. I let myself be sad for a little. You know, I can be appropriately sad, but I can't have self-pity. Um, and then I went and I made sure my mom wasn't sad. Okay. So at the end of bottom of page 122, it says cessation of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained abnormal condition. So the fact that we don't eat compulsively anymore, and if you still are and you're working these pro this program, pretty soon you won't be anymore. They're saying that's just the beginning. That's just God's opening act that you're not, you know, that we're not eating compulsively anymore. There's more. And that's our relationships. And so page 123, they say, okay, we're going to tell you some of the obstacles a family may meet, an obstacle that gets in the way of love and tolerance, right? That's what, that's what they want to help us with. Just a second. Speak of an obstacle. My son is building something in his room and putting pieces of wood in here. 
Hey, hon, can you close the door and try and keep it down? Um, some of the obstacles. So an obstacle to what? An obstacle to tolerance, understanding, and love. So they want to close the door. Thank you. Um, and how these obstacles can be converted to good for others. And they tell us the first thing. Okay, you may be remembering when the other person in your life was romantic, thoughtful, and successful. So maybe we're thinking of our husbands when we first dated. And they say, today's life is measured against those other years. And when it falls short, the family may be unhappy. And I have a note in my margin, expectations are resentments under construction. It's from Herb K. Expectations are resentments under construction. So then they say, um, God, people believe, a family believes, almost owes this recompense, right? A father who's going to be romantic, thoughtful, considerate, um, you know, to his wife and doting on his children. God almost owes this recompense on a long overdue account. Okay, that is a dangerous way to feel that God owes me anything. God owes me nothing. And when we realize that, that God owes us nothing, then everything is gift. And we could be, then um, we can practice gratitude because everything is gift. Um, and it tells us the alcoholic spent years pulling down the structures of business, romance, family, friendship, health. These things are ruined. Some things unfortunately can't ever be fixed. I, um, you know, when I was binging, I, both my parents are diabetic and I binged and abused my body for so many years with sugar that even though now I eat like clean and, you know, take care of myself and exercise the damage that I've done coupled with the genetics, you know, it's looking pretty good. I may end up diabetic. Um, some things are ruined, can't fix it, but I can make sure it doesn't get bad. You know, I can do what I can now, but some things are ruined and being a grown up in recovery means we accept it. We just accept that some things, you know, there's some relationships we may have damaged and the person may never want to speak with us again. You know, that's, we have to learn to live with that. But it says, um, Old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones. Beautiful imagery, right? But the new structure will take years to complete, right? Recovery is a process. It's not an event. It's not, okay, I got to step 12. Now my kids should be behaving. My husband should be doting on me all the time. I should never feel fearful and I should get that promotion. No, no. They say it doesn't happen like that. And it tells us then the wise family will admire the recovering alcoholic for what he's trying to be rather than what he is trying to get. And so I think that's good for us to look at. Am I trying to become something or am I trying to get something? What am I looking for? Um, and I think God is more concerned with our character than with our possessions. 
he gives us possessions often just because he's good and gracious. But the founders of AA, most of them were pretty poor. Even Dr. Bob, who was a doctor, um, God is more concerned with my character. So page 124, they say, okay, you're gonna have some skeletons in your closet and you are going to want to bury them. But they say, no. Henry Ford says, experience is the thing of supreme value in life. And they say, well, maybe it's true only if we're willing to turn the past to good account. And how do we do that? It says we grow by our willingness to face and rectify our errors. So we have to face them, right? In our fourth step, our fifth step and rectify them by making amends and then converting them into assets. How do we do that? How do I take my shameful and painful past and convert it into an asset? And the next paragraph tells me this painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problems. So by telling our stories and our pain and our shameful things, we can get a newcomer to relate and to feel safe. We want two things. We want an identification, but we want that person to feel safe. Um, one of the most shameful things in my past is I faked a rape. I mean, you know, I took a razor, slashed myself, um, went to the ER, got penicillin so I wouldn't get syphilis from my fake rapist, went through an exam, had a you know, rape counselor escort there with me, stayed with my boyfriend for a while, put him through misery. Um, you know, that was a horrible thing I did. Went back, made amends to the hospital, made amends to the boyfriend and was talking about it at a meeting. And one of my sponsees and said, I faked a rape also. So my shameful, painful past was a bridge for me to help somebody else. And they go on and they tell us, showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing that makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. That is true. Um, cling to the thought that in God's hand, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. So my dark past is the greatest possession I have only in God's hands only if I put it to use to help others. So then they go ahead and they um, switch gears and they say, okay, if you have a fight with, if you're like in a bad situation with someone and here they talk about someone who had cheated on the spouse and the spouse forgave them. Um, and they said, then the miracle of reconciliation was at hand. They use the word miracle many times here the miracle of reconciliation. But you know how it is, right? Or at least I know how, how it is. I can easily forgive someone for some big thing, but then maybe they do one little thing that has nothing to do with it. And there I am bringing up that old thing. I don't do that anymore, but I used to. And they say, don't do it. It's not kind. And we are supposed to be kind. You know, if we're, if we're upset because, you know, the, our husband said he'd pick up a gallon of milk and he didn't do it. You know, we don't say you forgot to pick up the milk. 
And you also cheated on me 20 years ago. You know, we don't do that. We just stick to the milk. Um, page 125, it, they again, they stress that um, unless a good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. And they tell us that sometimes people are fighting so much over past things they won't let die. They say sometimes a husband and wife have had to separate for a while until new victory over hurt pride could be rewon. A new victory rewon. And that tells us sometimes we have to fight a spiritual battle more than once. So it's not like I resolve a resentment and I'm never going to get a resentment again or never get a resentment against that person again. Um, or if I indulge in a character defect and I'm sorry and I ask God to remove it and I make my amends, it doesn't mean I'm never going to indulge in it again. Um, with God's grace, we indulge in them less and less frequently. Um, but they, again, so just if you're one of the perfectionist people here, um, we are not going to become perfect overnight. I've been at this for almost 40 years and I'm not even 10% to perfect. I'm not even 1% to there. So it takes time, but I'm way better than I used to be, way better. Okay, couple spiritual principles here. They say, um, we don't relate intimate experiences of another person unless we are sure he would approve. We don't go talking about other people under the guise of, um, can you pray for this person who just cheated on her husband? We don't do that. You know, especially when we take a fifth step, I always tell my sponsees, anything you tell me goes with me to the grave, right? It is a sacred responsibility to, um, to hear someone's confidence. And then they tell us, we alcoholics are sensitive people. And we think, oh, we're sensitive. Isn't that so great? That means like, I like poetry and looking at the sky and, you know, the leaves on the trees and all that. I'm sensitive to the rustling of the breeze. And then the next line says, yeah, it takes some of us a long time to outgrow that serious handicap. So I think what they mean by sensitive is that someone says something to us. I think being sensitive is the opposite of being tolerant. Someone says something to us and it just, it just ruins us. Um, the best example I could think of is, gosh, I was in elementary school. So I had to be sixth grade or younger. And if someone said they didn't like what I was wearing, I would feel sick to my stomach. I was sensitive. That's not a quality that we should have. We are people who should just, you know, let insults roll off us. We like, we shouldn't even notice them. Who cares? God loves us. You know, we're restoring relationships. We're helping other people. We're not eating compulsively. Yeah. So what if someone doesn't like the shirt I'm wearing? Okay. I'm going to skip to page 127. And it says, Okay, the family has to realize that dad, though marvelously improved, is still convalescing. So we're growing again for ourselves. We don't get um, we don't get 
perfect, as I said, overnight. Our character defects aren't going to disappear overnight, but we should see growth. We don't want to fall off on the side of the bed like, yeah, I'm not of the side of the bed of being perfect, of like anytime we're not perfect, we think we have zero recovery. But I think most of us tend to fall off on the other side of the bed that, yeah, well, I'm not eating compulsively, so I'm doing okay. And no, I think the middle of the bed, the right place is to see growth. So for instance, growth might be a year ago when I got resentful, it took me about three days until I resolved the resentment. And then six months ago, I would say I could resolve them within 24 hours. And then three months ago, I realized I could resolve them within a couple of hours. And now I can generally resolve it in a, most of them in a 15 minute 10 step. We should be always looking for growth. Am I growing in my ability to resolve resentments? Am I growing in my tolerance where fewer things bother me? Am I growing in understanding that when someone is not very nice, I can look and see what's going on with them? Am I growing in love, self-sacrifice for the good of other people? Okay, so we want to always be um, sure that we're growing. And then it tells us with someone who's recovering, let the praise his progress. You know, if there's people in our lives who are struggling, praise, right? If a kid is horrible at cleaning his room, then if he puts one thing away, praise. You know, praise is just, um, it's just a wonderful aspect of love. Everyone likes to hear something good. Now, not something phony good, but something good. And they say, okay. If the person is cranky, depressed, or apathetic, here's how to make it disappear. These kind of attitudes disappear in another person, or at least improve. If there's tolerance, love, and spiritual understanding. So if there's someone who's cranky, depressed, or apathetic, now notice it doesn't say abusive, right? Again, not for abusive. Cranky, in a bad mood depressed, in a sad mood, apathetic, in a mood where they don't care about anything. How do we help that person? We give them tolerance, love, and spiritual understanding. Love, what does that mean? Um, I think one of the best definitions I've heard, well, I've heard a couple. One is self-sacrifice for the good of the other person. That's executing love. But in a book that I really found helpful called Prayer Can Change Your Life, it defined love as having three components. So one is self-sacrifice. The other is loyalty, meaning we don't sit there and talk badly about the other person. We don't vent about the other person. And forgiveness. So loyalty, self-sacrifice, and forgiveness. So these are things that we can show to other people by an effort of will, whether we feel loving or not. Um, and then they start talking about finances and they tell us there's a danger of over-concentrating on financial success. And they say, I'm still on page 127, 
Although financial recovery is on the way for many of us, we found we could not place money first. And then here's a promise. For us, material well-being always followed spiritual progress. It never proceeded. So they're saying spiritual progress always comes before financial. And I was thinking about that, like, how come? How come, like, how come it's like that? And I was thinking that for me and probably most of us, if all the financial success and well-being came, how much would we want God? And God is more interested in a relationship with me. Um, it's not, you know, we talk a lot about how God launches search and rescue missions for us, and he does. But why? And the reason is because he loves us. And only after we're kind of rescued and freed from the obsession of compulsive eating, can we really have a close relationship with each other, us and God, with God in the driver's seat, of course, um, close, but not equal partners. If, if God drops a boatload of money on my front door, is it going to be as easy for me to rely on him, to trust for him, to reach for him? So God wants a relationship with us first. That is his main goal. And they go on and they say, the home has suffered more than anything else. So a man must exert himself there, effort. So we should be asking ourselves, am I putting forth effort in my home? And what does that look like for me? How can I put forth effort? And they tell us, and this is, now this is a warning about a cause of relapse. He is not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show unselfishness and love under his own roof. So I can be the most loving sponsor in the world, but if I'm coming home and yelling at everyone in my house, I'm in trouble. And it says, He's not likely to get far in any direction. And I believe that means even with putting down the food. So if someone's struggling and they're saying, but I'm doing my step work, a question you can ask yourself is, am I showing unselfishness and love under my own roof? And they say, yeah, there's difficult families, um, but we have to remember we probably played a part in it. So difficult or not, we show unselfishness and love. Now, sometimes we have to figure out what does love look like? So if we have a child who continually breaks curfew, love might look like grounding them, right? Because, you know, you can't let people just get away with everything. That's not preparing them for real life when the consequences will be bigger. Um, so love and unselfishness. and again, trying to discern what love looks like in the various situations and the various relationships in our life. And it tells us that, okay, everyone's going to see their shortcomings and admit them to others, or um, that should be the result, right? As I start doing it, as I start admitting my faults to others, then they're going to start doing it too. because you know, they're not going to do it without me doing it first often because of whatever their own pride or, or my self-righteousness. Um, but if I break down my self-righteousness, 
I think humility can be contagious. And it tells us um, what to avoid in talks with our families. Heated argument. So I can disagree, right? I'm not, I'm not a mouse, I'm not a doormat, um, but I don't get heated about it. Um, self-pity, no self-pity. Um, remember self-pity parties end with a cake. No self-pity for us. Um, no self-justification. Like, well, yeah, I lost my temper, but, uh-uh, I lost my temper, I'm sorry. And then we do our inventory and we figure out why and we try and amend it. And no resentful criticism. You know, sometimes I might tell my husband something that he does that I wish he would do it differently. Um, like when he smoked, I told him, you know, I wish he wouldn't smoke. But never, we don't tell people what to do out of our resentment. And they tell us that we start seeing, we have to look to see if we're asking too much or if we're giving too little. And page 128 at the top, they say, giving rather than getting will become the guiding principle. Well, that is something that we can all practice everywhere, right? Whenever we go into a situation, how can I contribute something in this situation? What can I give? Not to walk in and say, what can I get out of it? I had a relative who, whenever he would go to a grocery store, would like look for all the freebies, you know, the little samples. It's like, what, and not a compulsive eater, but it was just like the, this kind of the joy of getting something out of the situation. We need to be the opposite, get our joy out of what can I give to the situation? So even little things like, going to the store when we're done and we put our card away, put another card away. If a couple of apples have fallen, you know, pick them up. If you're in a dress store and some clothes are falling down or you see something in the wrong size, put it in the right place. Little things, but to just cultivate an attitude of giving rather than getting. Okay, page 128. They say, assuming on the other hand, father has at the outset a stirring spiritual experience. Overnight, as it were, he is a different man. He becomes a religious enthusiast. He's unable to focus on anything else. Um, so I don't want anyone to read this and say, oh my gosh, I haven't had that experience where overnight I became a different person. And I'll tell you, I had the experience of overnight um, the food obsession was removed. It was like one minute I was binging and unable to stop. I took a sponsor who, and I said, I'll do whatever you tell me. I went out in the parking lot and basically said to God, you're in charge now. Um, and that was it with the food, but I was not a different person. Um, my character defects were still all there. I'd say, except for dishonesty, because I made a decision. I, well, because my sponsor told me like one dishonesty and we're done. So I just decided I'm going to be honest no matter what. Um, but I was not a different person. So if you are not a different person overnight, it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Later on in um, the book, Appendix 2, they talk about a spiritual experience, the sudden kind, like what Bill Wilson had, versus the more gradual awakening, 
where um, where it takes where often it's like we look back and it's like, oh yeah, I handled that differently. And other people often see the change before we do. Now, let me say that does not mean that um, if we're having a spiritual awakening, that that gives us license to play around with the food or to say, well, God's awakening me slowly. So my food obsession is going away slowly. No, in the AA 12 and 12, they're very clear that um, step one is the only step that can be taken perfectly. You know, right away, I admit I'm powerless over food. And it seems the only, I don't want to call it a defect, but once we do, the only thing that um, can be removed fully right from the beginning. Okay, um, so they say, dad, if he gets all spiritual and religious right away, might be telling everyone, you know, you're doing it wrong. And they're saying, don't do that. You know, that yes, we have a great way of life, but we shouldn't go to our spouses and say, honey, I know you've been going to church or synagogue or mosque for, you know, 30 years for your whole life, but you're doing it wrong. Here's the way you have to do it. The way the big book says, we don't do that. And then it also says something else may happen to a family. They may be jealous that of a God who's stolen God, dad's affections. And they say, while grateful that he drinks no more, they may not like the idea that God has accomplished the miracle where they failed. Guys, recovery is a miracle. Of course, we're going to fail, right? We can't produce miracles. And they say, they often forget father was beyond human aid. They may not see why their love and devotion did not straighten him out. I mean, I think what's the most powerful human force there is love, right? And that can't do it. The most powerful human force I have can't straighten somebody else out. Um, we are beyond human aid. We need miracles. Okay, um, page 129, just want to point out, they say, Father has scratched a limitless load, which will pay dividends only if he minds it for the rest of his life and insists on giving away the entire product. So we are people who, in order to stay in recovery, step 12 is not optional. We keep mining it. We keep going deeper into our relationship with God. And then we use what we've learned, what we experience and get more effective at helping others. And they warn the recovering person that a spiritual life, which doesn't include family obligations is not perfect. So if I'm so busy sponsoring people that I have no time to cook dinner, um, I'm off track. So just something we have to remember. And, but they do tell the families that during the first days of the guy's convalescence, helping others will do more to ensure his sobriety than anything else. Helping others right away, even if you're brand new in recovery. Yes, you can't sponsor, um, but you can do things for other people. You can go to a 
target parking lot and put shopping carts away. You can go visit your aunt who nobody likes to visit. You know, you can always find things to do to help other people. Um, page 130 of oh, this, I must like this because I have four hearts in the margin by it. Um, okay, yes. So it says, those of us who spent much time in the world of spiritual make-believe have eventually seen, seen the childishness of it. This dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose. That's one of the gifts of this program. Accompanied by, so we have a great sense of purpose. That's one thing. Step 12, right? Helping others. Accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives through our steps 10 and 11, clearing away the wreckage of each day and praying and meditating and reading spiritual thing to get closer to God and a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives, that God is actively working in our lives. And then here's where I have my three hearts. We have come to believe he, God, would like us to keep our head in the clouds with him, but that our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. That is where our fellow travelers are, and that is where our work must be done. And I would say that most of us probably are more naturally inclined toward one or the other. Some of us may be more naturally inclined toward helping people and not like, I just want to spend time with God, getting to know God, getting closer with God. And some of us are more, oh, I just want to like keep my head in the clouds with God and me and God and, you know, aren't so interested in helping others. And they're saying, we need both. We are people who need both. Um, they, and they say, we have found nothing incompa incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy usefulness. And I think we'll stop with that. And next Monday, we'll finish up this chapter and then we will tackle two employers. And so that's all I got. Thanks.